Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife. I hope you're enjoying them so far if you're a a regular listener. And today I'm really excited to have a fellow vet friend of mine. She's an ocean advocate, an environmentalist and a real adventurer. Um, She's definitely one of the most passionate marine conservationists that I know. A really great communicator and a campaigner. I am delighted to have her with us. I'd like you to welcome Cal Major. Cal, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast and have a chat with me. Oh, thank you for the intro. And yeah, thanks for inviting me along. It's, um, I think there's a few vets doing some pretty awesome stuff in the conservation world and it's really great to link up. I feel like every time I have a yeah. conversation with a different vet in a slightly different field, there's so many complementary um, passions and ideas. It's a, yeah, it's an exciting time, isn't it? It sure is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm enjoying yeah, seeing what everyone is up to. I kind of forget sometimes. I don't know if, about you, but being a vet, you kind of, you don't work, well, I don't work with many other vets and you kind of are in your own little silo and you forget actually your community of other vets you have a lot in common with. And most vets I know are, are passionate conservationists as well, even if they're not working in that field. Yeah, definitely. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't work day to day with many other vets either. But whenever I have these conversations around the things that I'm passionate about, it turns out that yes, my colleagues have the same passions. And I really strongly believe that a lot of those passions that I have stem from the same reasons why I trained to be a vet, which was my absolute love and desire to care for animals. But that's extended out into the greater world rather than just in the in the veterinary clinic. Um, and I think I share that with a lot of other vets. Um, And it's an exciting time, I think, for the veterinary industry and the community who are starting to acknowledge that as vets, we have a position of influence and um, a position of trust that we can help to encourage other people to live live more sustainable lives and to become part of these conversations as well. Um, And you've probably heard of the Vet Sustain um, group. They're doing Yeah, yeah. I've been to their inaugural meetings with you there, actually, as well, aren't you? And uh, yeah, I love what they're doing. Yeah. What's yeah. that? It's one of those conferences yeah, where but... yours all day and your brain just melts and it kind of dribbles out of your ear by the end of the day. I know. I know. It was like brain overload, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. But yeah, really great stuff happening. And yeah, to your point about kind of early days, I definitely started with, you know, a love of nature and wildlife and, um, you know, all the life around us. It was only later on I, I kind of decided or discovered there was a career in pet animals, but that's a very small part, I think, of what uh, where that came from, where the passion came from. Wow. Kind of come full circle yeah. now back to conservation and wildlife. That's really interesting. I think I had, a, I had a similar kind of, yeah, early mm. passion for wildlife. And then same as you, I, I absolutely adored animals. I just wanted to... Um, I just wanted to, to work with them and to look after them. And then, you know, I was kind of introduced to the idea of, of being a, a vet to domestic species. Um, but so my kind of 
passion for the marine side of things has come has come from physical interaction with them within the marine environment scuba diving and surfing and that kind of thing um but it's i think people look in on the veterinary industry and oftentimes vets actually in the industry as well will kind of have this quite blinkered view as to what we do which is that we are in a clinic we're you know treating cats and dogs or out on a farm treating farm animals and there are so many different avenues um both kind of away from that and which complement that and it's a question I get a lot actually um are you still a vet and oh god I am still a vet I'm still up to date with my CPD I'm a, a member of the Royal College I'm so proud to be a vet and it's you know it's one of my kind of aspects of my um my career my personality and uh, maybe personality is the wrong term but you know what I mean it's a real part of who I am and my identity um, your identity yeah. like yeah yeah and, and I think kind of yeah this idea from external um onlookers that to be a vet you need to be kind of actually you know clinically treating animals on a daily basis I think that's um it's not it's not the case for so many vets who are working um as members of the Royal College and uh it's exciting to know that there are other ways that we can use our passions and our skills because I I definitely use a lot of skills I've learned as a vet in my campaigning and in my communications yeah definitely definitely so um do you have similar conversations I do yeah and I think you know I I did the traditional path of being you know a clinical vet in a small animal practice in an urban area you know the standard idea of what people think a a pet vet is for six years and um, to be honest I think I've talked to you about before but got a little bit bored of the repetition of it and and wondered you know what can I do next to make this a long you know fulfilling career because I just found I wasn't being like stimulated very much. I was getting a little bit bored and, and um, you know, when I was trying to decide what I do next, there was definitely this kind of maybe fear holding me back of like what other people might think if I like stray off the traditional veterinary path or if I'm not treating animals physically in my day-to-day role, am I still even a vet anymore? I've definitely got over that, Cal, <laughs> as you know. Um, and, and lots of our friends have, you know, diversified into all sorts of careers as well that they wouldn't necessarily be in if they weren't a vet because it does teach you a lot about a lot of things, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. No, I, I, I think that's a really good point, actually. That kind of, yes, yeah, so I, I had I had similar experience. I spent several years in practice, a year in farm animal practice when I first graduated. It was mixed practice, but most, mostly farm. And then several years in small animal clinical practice. And for me, it wasn't the boredom that drove me out, but it was this deep passion to protect the marine environment. So it wasn't so much yeah. that... I was bored and I wanted something else. Um, not suggesting that that was a you know that, that anything wrong with that at all. That's you know com- I think completely understandable. A lot of people feel that as well. Um, but mine was specifically there was something else that I really wanted to be doing with my skills and my time and my passion. Um, yeah. But it's, it's so funny how how drilled into us it is that if you're a vet, you're in practice and you're working, and, and yeah, all the external influence of people saying, "Oh, it's such a shame that you left." I actually had um, a, 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 a I am um, a lady who is a, a clinical coach, uh, not a clinical coach, so a personal coach, um, Penny yeah. Barker, who's become a very good friend of mine, but she's also coached me for several years now. And the first few coaching sessions were all about trying to break down those um, preconceived ideas of what a vet is, both within my own um kind of internal feelings of what it was people's external feelings projecting onto me and apparently it's really common when people are are transitioning away from being a clinical vet to have those kind of really deep-seated ideas of well I'm a vet I should be in a vet 
And yet, how many historians do you know? How many people who study history at uni are now historians or geography students and now geographers? It's yeah, it's it's a strange one. I know. Yeah. It's crazy. I went as well. I uh, contacted Vet Life, which is a charity we'll talk about in a little bit. Okay. Um, but I contacted them because I was at a pretty low ebb. You know, it was the first time in my life where. I was really struggling like mental health wise mm. and kind of going, Oh God, what's next? Like how, mm. how do I make life better? Like I was pretty miserable in clinical practice towards the end. Cause I just mm. thought, I don't yeah. see, I don't know if I see a way out. So yeah. I spent quite a bit of time with a, a career counselor and uh, later just counselor trying to work out like, why is my identity so wrapped up in this like yeah. one job rather than one amazing career that gives you lots of options and you you know you know you've got great communication skills you've got lots of transferable skills to do other things in the world that are uh, not just you know vaccinating and looking after cats and dogs in a in a small clinic all your life and as you say nothing wrong with that it's different yeah. things about the career um, appeal to different people but I did towards the end you know feel a bit trapped and definitely felt like I wasn't really fulfilling a, a bigger picture mission you know and, and doing what I was passionate about which was you know wildlife conservation so um yeah I can totally identify with that it does kind of get drummed into you from an early age if you decide veterinary is your career path that it's kind of a, a you know very defined career and, and this is what it looks like and maybe yeah. growing up we just didn't have the veterinary role models to look at that we're doing other things I, I certainly didn't. The the uni degree is really pre-prescribed, isn't it? You know, you do your, yeah. your clinical years, you learn about the animal body, and then you do your clinical years, and you learn how to be a vet in practice. And there, are, you know, you occasionally do a pathology rotation and learn how to be a pathologist, um, and you know, a few other kind of slight diversions, but it, yeah. it's not talked about as um, as a building block for other career paths. So. I'm really, I'm, I'm really, um, yeah, interested to hear that you had some some coaching in that direction as well. Because for me, it was completely transformative, and it just gave me permission. Yeah. This is what I care about. This is what I'm really passionate about. I'm super proud of all the training and all the clinical work I've done. But this is where I need to focus my passion and my energies now. Um, so yeah. you're describing. Um, have you heard of your icky guy? Oh. No. Have you? It sounds disgusting, doesn't it? Ikigai, I think, is a Japanese um, model where basically it's a, a triangle of three factors. It's uh, what you should be doing with your life is the intersection of what you love, what you're good at, and what the world needs. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I think I've got it right, but that's exactly what you just described. <laughs> and yeah, coaching. Coaching uh, definitely um, clarified a few things for me on that. Mm. But yeah, it's a brilliant, uh, brilliant model to, to look at. Oh, brilliant. I looked that up. Yeah. So um, the first time we met was at our friend Ebony's uh, Vets Day Go Diversify um, yeah. conference, where the veterinary community came together to talk about alternative careers and paths and passions and, um, you know, for vets maybe who are struggling. And there is, you know, a serious mental health problem in vets and, and the highest suicide rate of any profession. Unfortunately, there's a lot of vets out there who maybe do feel stuck in their careers, but it was an amazing event where we saw lots and lots of stayers. So making their clinical careers work, um, leavers who were doing things totally unrelated to veterinary and diversifiers maybe who are using their veterinary degree in, in a, a different way than the kind of traditional model. But I interviewed you and we screened your um, one of your first films or big films, I guess, Sky's the Limit, mm -hmm. um, which uh, we'll talk about in a second. But one of the things that I found 
uh, quite fascinating in interviewing you for that was your story about, you know, where your love of the ocean came from and how that kind of drew you away from, you know, traditional vet work. Um, why do you think the ocean holds like such an important place in your heart and has kind of shaped everything that you do now? Um, so my first real, real transformative experience of the ocean, we'd always go on holiday to the We'd go. I grew up in Warrington, which is between two big cities, Manchester and Liverpool. So not particularly yeah. near the ocean, but you know, we'd always go to Wales on holidays, and I was think I was always quite mesmerised by the sea. But my first really transformative experience of the ocean was when I was eighteen, and I travelled around Australia and New Zealand for about six months to a year. Uh, yeah, six six or seven months, um, and I learned to scuba dive. And I can still really, there's very much of that trip that I don't remember for many reasons. Um, But there's that memory of the first time underwater that is still so clearly imprinted on my brain. And it was, oh my gosh, you know, I can still remember it like I'm I'm right there um, on Magnetic Island on the east coast of Australia. And I'd never been scuba diving before. And... I put my face underwater and we sort of went down about five metres and I was just in this completely different world. And all the stresses and worries had gone, everything was peaceful. And yet in this world, it was magical. It was colourful, there were so many colours. There were fish that were bigger than I was, there were turtles just floating around as if I wasn't even there. And it was it was so awe-inspiring and so beautiful and so peaceful and that was the moment that I knew that I wanted to do everything I could to protect the ocean environment I just fell completely head over heels in love with it um and I did a lot of surfing when I was in Australia I'd already done a bit of surfing beforehand but really kind of got very into surfing um went to uni in Edinburgh spent a lot of time with the surf club there and basically was in the water any given opportunity whether it was surfing or wakeboarding or um swimming um you know even in the middle of winter in the on the east coast of Scotland yeah. I'd be there in a holy wetsuit that I got for 10 quid off eBay just jumping in the sea having the best time surfing away after horrendous hangover um and I just loved it. <laughs> And um, after I graduated, moved down to the west coast of Wales. And again, one of the main reasons I moved there was because of the proximity to the ocean. And at that point, I was working as a farm vet. Hours were horrendous. I was working really, really long hours, but also nights, weekends. And any possible moment that I could, I'd go to the beach and just be by the sea. Um, I didn't feel the need to... on the west coast where I was there wasn't any surf I'd have to travel quite a way to surf but when I had weekends off I would go and surf but the rest of the time just just being on the beach just walking up and down the beach being by the water was the place that I'd go to to de-stress from from my job and like you've the veterinary profession the clinical job is is a pretty full-on job um and I moved down to Devon uh, a couple of years after graduating, again, to, to be by the sea for a small animal job, I moved from large animal into small animal. And at that point in time, I basically worked, I worked four days a week, four long days a week. And then the three days off initially, those three days off were all about finding whatever ocean adventure I could. So I started some paddle boarding, I started, um, I was surfing a lot, um, swimming, whatever I could in the ocean, whatever the conditions would allow. I didn't realize then that I was doing these things to benefit my mental health. The term mental health didn't yeah. 
in life. I'd never had mental illness before. I wasn't appreciative of the fact that we all have mental health that we support. I was doing it because I had a really stressful job and my way to blow off steam and have fun and have a laugh and feel alive again and feel peace and joy and happiness was being in the ocean, being by the water, being in the water. And so it wasn't even like a conscious, I need to go to the ocean to benefit my mental health. It was, I finished work, I'm going to the sea immediately. Um, and it was, was it an addiction? It might well have been an addiction, yeah. Um, yeah. But it was, it was everything. It was absolutely everything I could think of. Whenever I wasn't at work, I was at the ocean. And it's only yeah. really struggling with my mental health and sort of looking more into mental health and, and, and mental illness and the benefits of um, being by the water for that and blue mind and all that kind of thing that I've started to consciously add water time into my life specifically for that. But it's always been my place to have fun. And I just, I, like I say, I fell head over heels in love with this amazing underwater world. And also the the times I spent on top of the water and in the water were just the best times of my life. Um, and yeah. I think that's one of the beautiful things about um, nature conservation and trying to engage people in nature conservation, particularly in ocean conservation, is that as soon as somebody is hooked, as soon as somebody finds that personal connection to the ocean and falls in love with it, you know, nine times out of 10, they're going to want to protect it. And I'm sure you found that yes. well with, with the wildlife groups and you get people out there getting super awe-inspired and excited about a place. And they're like, oh, of course we want to protect this. This place is awesome. Whether or not they've made the conscious connection that it's their mental health that it's benefiting. It's fun. It's enjoyable. Absolutely. And I think so many people have have kind of come to that realisation now with COVID lockdown this year, yeah. right? That actually having that you know one hour of exercise to get out in the early days of it was like super super important to de-stress yeah. and and, decompress and get away from you know the four walls and and basically switch the brain not off but into a different you know mode where you're noticing nature and bird song and life around you and green space it you know mm-hmm. It is part of our DNA. It's part of our makeup that we need that, isn't it? It definitely is. And there are lots of studies about, yeah, the fact that we need it. We've grow, we've developed as human beings in the natural world. And now we're in this strange society where we are completely cut off from the natural world, both physically in terms of the walls that we live inside um, yeah. and in terms of our appreciation of it. And it seems so strange that we're kind of using nature often, you know, that our day of exercise, that's our escape from life, was actually shouldn't it be a, 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 an, a, an escape back to life like that that do you know what I mean like rather than I know using it to escape normality like that should be in the I'm, normality and this kind of now, like, now is yeah. just completely irrelevant to a human um to, to what, how a human developed it's so hard I know and it's like it's in the blink of an eye really with the kind of industrial revolution or mm. yeah revolution and things that we've become so urbanized and um, domesticated and, and, and so on but it's kind yeah. of come full circle now that we're seeing GPs prescribing time in nature to help mm-hmm. people which is crazy it's yeah. good because that's where we are but it's actually crazy that you know we're so disconnected from it that it actually you know a doctor will write us a prescription to go and do some forest bathing or get out in nature or yes you know have some time away from normal life if normal life is so harmful to us um yeah, and stressful. Yeah, it is. And this whole thing of prescribing nature, I really hope that that's not seen as you can only go into nature if you've got a prescription or if you're wealthy enough for that to be a luxury at the weekend. It's everywhere. Yeah. You know, nature isn't just about 
going paddleboarding or going surfing if you can afford the kit or going for a prescribed hour in nature because that's what the doctor tells you to do it really it really needs to be part of all of us as humans not just yeah. for our mental health because it is completely vital for our mental health but also so that we appreciate the need to look after our planet um because that's what's going to that's what's going to encourage people to make the right choices and and support the right governments and businesses that are, are doing the right thing for the planet is if we find a way to reconnect to um to nature on a kind of daily basis rather than it just being a sporadic thing yeah and what i found really helpful for me is actually you know as you've kind of touched on making the time to go mm-hmm. and and connect and get outdoors and just switch off the kind of like normal life 10 things a second you know juggling spinning plates and and actually when my mental health is best is when i've actively made the decision to include outdoor nature switch off time in my weekly schedule and when i miss it and don't go out you know uh for a day i know that my mood is lower the next day you know i can feel it and that's interesting you say you move lower the next day because that's often the case, isn't it? It's often a kind of 24-hour... Um, yeah. Like I describe it as my like mental health battery, you know, and it's like if you've mm. run it down and you've topped it up and it's going to be in 24, 48 hours that you kind of hit the very low point where the, the light is flashing. Yeah, I like that. Right, let's stop this recording. I'm going to go and top up my mental health battery. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, get on get on wireless and uh, take take this outdoors. <laughs> yeah, I maybe mean, next time we'll we'll be allowed to actually take outdoors. Well, since um, since lockdown, a lot of my meetings have gone online. I, I do a lot of talks and um, events and stuff, and a lot of them have gone online. And I've started really trying to take any business calls that I have that can just be taken on the phone. I try and do them out on a walk now um, because yeah. I'm absolutely loathe being inside four walls all day um and if you've got loads of computer work to do it just it drives me crazy it completely drains me um so i took um yeah i took a i had a call with a, a solicitor a few, a few weeks ago and i took him to the beach and so I was like hello i've brought you to the beach and then realized who i was talking to it's like i mean <clears throat> yeah it's a legal business <laughs> pretty good yeah i'm the same I'm, I'm taking a lot of walking meetings outside as well um, definitely climbing the walls at some some points in time, being in all the time. Um, so obviously, Cal, you've talked about, you know, why the ocean was good for your mental health and, and managing that. And um, you were kind of like driven to get back to it whenever you could. But at what stage did it turn from just enjoying the ocean and having a real interest in it and awe for it into the this, the real concern that I know you have for the health of our oceans. At what point or what inspired that kind of transition to say, okay, I've been using the ocean as recreation for, for a while now and really enjoying it and I'm passionate about it. But when did you decide I need to be, you know, an, a warrior for the ocean's health and an advocate for the ocean's health? Yeah. Um, so I was really interested in the ocean ecology and biology and I um I volunteered at the National Marine Aquarium for quite a while while I was working in Plymouth um okay really got to know the species there and just felt yeah it was just this love affair that was getting deeper and deeper with the more I learned about it and the more time I spent there and then I started noticing plastic on the beaches and that just it really upset me it sets off something quite deep within me because 
the plastic that I was finding on the beaches oftentimes was single-use plastic, stuff that was avoidable, like plastic water bottles. And I found it so hurtful to think that our actions as human beings, which oftentimes are so avoidable, were destroying these places that I'd fallen in love with. And it wasn't just the fact that it was unsightly when I was surfing, because I knew about the animals that were living there. And going back to the reasons I trained as a vet, I, I adore animals. I've taken an oath to protect them. To me, that extends to the animals in the ocean. And seeing these just ridiculous things like crisp packets and plastic water bottles and um fishing nets as well you know i know that's a, a much bigger um, issue to tackle but um mm. on the beaches where i knew that there were animals just offshore was i found that really really hard to swallow um and i was starting to notice it on the beaches in devon and then went up to scotland in my camper van with a very very good friend of mine and we were touring around the isle of tyree which is a tiny little island off the west coast of scotland and even there yeah. where there were so few people who live there there was a beach which was so covered in plastic that i was wading up to sort of shin knee height in plastic um wow. and i just thought if if this place this tiny island where this stuff isn't coming from these people who live here. If that's this affected, then this must be a massive global problem. Um, and yeah, it was, and I think that's the beauty of the plastic pollution crisis. And that stemmed a huge journey for me in terms of ocean conservation and my understanding of it and my appreciation of what's needed to create the systemic change that we need in society to reconnect to our oceans and want to protect it. But the, that, the beauty of the plastic pollution crisis in my eyes, if, you know, if we can find a silver lining is that it's completely visible and it's tangible and we can get a little bit irate about the fact that there's plastic on our beautiful beaches um and oftentimes that conversation leads to further conversations about the wider environment and um so certainly for me the plastic pollution crisis was was what started off my kind of veering off my my current path which was working in the vets and at the week you know volunteering at the national marine aquarium doing a bit of volunteering with surfers against sewage and just surfing and paddleboarding all the time to i have yeah. to my primary focus and my, and my biggest um uh, priority now because this is urgent yeah yeah and talk to us about um you know why ocean health is important like in, in the bigger picture like mm. what is the status at the moment in terms of ocean health and you know, have we gone too far? You know, what's what's our status at the moment with regards to the world's oceans? Well, first of all, in terms of have we gone too far? No, but we need urgent, urgent action. And yeah. I really believe in, a, there's a term called ocean optimism, which is yeah. I think, the only way that we can deliver campaigns that are going to be engaging and meaningful. Um, as soon as we start guilting people, delivering just doom and gloom without any solution. Doom and gloom, yeah. yeah. There's no point. We're just going to turn people off and there's no point. Um, I mean, you know, for some people they need the shock factor, but they also need to be presented with solutions. In terms of why ocean health is important, I'm going to start first of all with um, the One Health concept. I don't know if you've discussed that on the podcast up until now. Not yet, actually. No, but I'm, I, yeah, I love it. Go on. So, I mean, briefly, One Health is the concept that human health, planetary health and animal health are all interlinked. So to have a healthy one, you have to have a healthy other two. And if you've and, and vice versa. And if one's unhealthy, the others are going to be unhealthy because our lives are all connected. And in terms of ocean health, the oceans are not, or the ocean, I should say, because there is just one great big body of water that circulates around the globe. 
the ocean is not just a playground for privileged people who live there. Um, it's not just somewhere where ocean-dwelling um, communities live and feed and get their medicines. It is a body of water that connects all of us. It's um, a huge life force. It's the food supply, medicine supply for billions of people around the world. The plankton in the ocean, they produce half the oxygen we breathe on Earth. So even if you live in the middle of the bay, completely landlocked, no ocean anywhere near you, every second breath you're breathing is produced by the plankton in the ocean. And That's incredible, it, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing. And the ocean ecosystem the environment... Focus on the Amazon rainforest all the time, but don't talk about the oxygen yeah. coming from the ocean. Well, exactly. And both important, but in terms of the oceans, they, they act, the, the ocean acts as this enormous carbon sink and what that means is that it takes carbon out of the atmosphere to create into our oxygen through the plants that, that live in the ocean um the, it's so vulnerable to a lot of the ecological problems that we're facing at the moment so climate change is causing and carbon dioxide release is causing acidification of the ocean which is killing coral reefs around the world which are the yeah. grounds of lots of fish um obviously it's going to take the um the, the plants that live in these coral reefs as well are going to be upset and that's the oxygen that we breathe and generally these these ocean ecosystems which at the moment are functioning in this incredible way where all the different life in the ocean is coming together to create these amazing ecosystems which support our life on earth support all the life in the ocean they are getting out of kilter because of global warming because of carbon in the atmosphere um because of overfishing you know we're taking species out so letting other species thrive which are potentially destroying ecosystems and all that feeds back massively onto our health as humans and i think you know from from my point of view i i think of it as i hate the idea of dolphins and turtles and fish and tiny little crustaceans that live in these amazing coral ecosystems i hate the idea of them dying and suffering but in terms of mm. a campaign point of view oftentimes we have to bring it back to how it affects that individual and so we've got to look at the fact that actually we need healthy oceans for healthy humans um and then also as, as as much as that you know they're just the most amazing place to be and each you know Every country has rivers flowing through it that leads to the oceans. You know, our lives on land are completely intrinsically linked to to the ocean health and, and to the ocean life. Um, and I think it's it's a real shame that we've kind of lost that sense of connection to the ocean and, and just how linked our lives are. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's so so important. I love the idea of ocean optimism because I think too much uh, or too often in the world of kind of conservation, it is doom and gloom, and it is mm. kind of this foreboding message that like we're running out of time. And yes, we are. But if yeah, if you only kind of bombard people with how terrible everything is, you do do just create, I think, a bit of indifference or apathy don't you or just complete depression if if yeah. all you see every day is the fact that the planet's buggered you you're going to think well what's the point doing anything about it and actually we have got time to, to turn things around we just need everybody yeah. to start now and everybody to feel empowered and to feel like they can be part of that conversation part of that movement and as soon as you yeah. start with people well 
you know, you've got to, um, you've got to do this, or this is going to happen, or um, look at the state of the planet, isn't it terrible? And look at all this terrible stuff that these terrible people are doing. What you've really got to say is, yes, okay, the facts are important, but look at all this amazing stuff that these people are doing, and you can be a part of that too, and you can be a part yeah. of your local community looking after your local environment, and all those little tiny pieces of the puzzle come together and um, and create a, a you know a, a blanket of of ecological consciousness around the world have you heard the jane goodall quote i'm probably going to misquote it now but jane goodall like ultimate legend of of conservation um has this lovely quote where she says something along the lines of it's easy to be overwhelmed by the enormity of the of the issues at hand but what she likes to do is is picture the whole world as a jigsaw puzzle and everybody's got their part in the jigsaw puzzle and if you do your part and you believe that everybody else is doing theirs then that's what then that, that's what basically creates the change around the world um and i think yeah. it's, it's a simplified idea and we do have to still pressure the government and the businesses to, to step up as well but i think the, the the kind of basis of that is is so powerful and it helps to dispel some of that anxiety around the enormity of the issues yeah yeah it's great great quote um you've you've been involved in some pretty impressive campaigns over the years, which we'll uh, discuss in a bit. But one of the first ones that I um, found out about and, and became familiar with your work was Paddle Against Plastic. So what, what was that? What inspired you to uh, to set that up? Obviously, you've talked about, you know, just the depressing nature of finding so much plastic on the beach and, and things. Um, but what about Paddle Against Plastic? What was the aim there? Yeah, so um, exactly. I, I was a bit when I first started seeing all the plastic on the beaches, all the messaging on Facebook was, this is awful, it's going to destroy the oceans and kill the turtles and the whales are all going to die. And actually what I was finding on the beaches in Devon were a lot of single-use plastic bottles and lots of them were water bottles. And I just thought, well, that's something we can do something really easily about. So rather than deliver these depressing messages, why don't we deliver a message of hope and empowerment and something that somebody can do? Um, And I just started to get into stand-up paddleboarding. And I'd heard about these two guys who'd paddled around the whole of Cornwall. And I thought, oh, I could do that. Like, I like paddleboarding. I do (laughs) plastic and it was 300 miles and the furthest I'd ever sucked before was about two miles I was like oh if if two guys can do it I two to 300 300 miles bear in mind I, I hadn't taken into consideration that these guys were each of them twice the size of me and stand-up paddleboard instructors and they've been on the water for like decades um I was like yeah, yeah. Cool. two men can do it this independent woman can um and so I decided that I was going to paddle around Cornwall and my message was going to be we can all do something around plastic. Let's all commit to using a refillable water bottle and ditching yep. plastic water bottles. And that's going to directly affect the health of our Cornish coastline. Um, and I was pretty naive and went into it thinking that I was going to have this amazing like three-week paddleboarding experience and I was going to get a six-pack and a tan and I was going to be paddling with dolphins every day um, and the ocean <laughs> came and whipped my ass very quickly. Um, I was going to say, I'm, I'm guessing that didn't come through, come yeah. through no? No, <laughs> um, hideous weather for most of the three weeks like we're talking six seven foot well um fog like blinding fog um gale force headwinds um 
No, I had no. days of like amazing, few amazing, beautiful flat days when we did have dolphins and I saw loads of sunfish one day, the mola mola. Um, but generally the, the main wildlife were seals, which are trying to chase me because it was mating season. So oh, right. Uh, and in your yeah. in your rubber wetsuit, you looked a bit uh, appealing. Yeah, I wore a wetsuit, so I'm a bit confused. It was a bit, um, yeah, it was a bit, I don't know, I felt a bit like I lost a bit of self-esteem there. What did they think of me? But, oh no! Yeah, um, it was an experience, and it was it was wonderful in so many ways. And you know, I was wild camping. I'd never wild camped before. I didn't know how to start a fire. I thought you just like threw logs in a pile and put a match to it, and that didn't didn't work. Um, I didn't really know. Like I don't know, there was so much I had to learn. Like I was coming in and out of beaches rather than harbors, so I was having to paddle through seven foot waves with a massive twelve foot stand up oh, all my kit on the front, rather than just paddling a few more miles around the corner and going in that harbor. And oh, it was yeah. it was such a great few weeks, exhausting and a, a huge learning curve. But um, but you completed it. Com- completed it. Yep. Yeah. Um, came in at Croyd. To, we were meant to come in at Croyd Beach. I say around Cornwall, paddled a bit of a bit of South Devon, a bit of North Devon as well. And the day we were meant to come into Croyd was something like fourteen foot swell and fifty mile an hour winds. So we just kind of delayed that a couple of days. Um, wow. And, um, yeah, completed it and um, spoke to lots of people along the way. And and that's the beauty of adventures like this. I think it gives you a vehicle to talk to people and you, you you know you can kind of capture people's imagination a little bit and spoke to loads of people on the way around the coast that were like what are you, what are you doing um and um I, I, there were definitely there was definitely more than one people that switched more than one person that switched to a reusable water bottle and that was the main aim Good, so yeah. if i could get 10 people to switch to a reusable water bottle for life then my job was done um so yeah it was uh it was a it was a great experience actually yeah Brilliant. And then you um, broke a world record on your next one, right? So am I right in saying for your next trip, you were the first woman to stand up paddleboard around the Isle of Skye and you yeah. did it solo as well? Yes. And that I was the was film that I introduced you to. Yes, exactly. And I never did it to be the first woman to paddle around. I just thought I was the first person to done it. And I, and I put this online in one of my communications and I had a man message me saying, just to let me know I did that last year. Um, I was like, oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it was, yeah. So paddled around the Isle of Skye in, in Scotland, which was a very different experience all again, because that time I was completely alone and um, still quite naive, but with, um, I don't know, a little bit more experience behind me. and Yeah. And I guess bringing the message to a, a wider audience because you um, produce an amazing film called Sky's the Limit, which is uh, really awe-inspiring, but kind of shows the massive scale of the, of the task, but also the challenges that you faced. Uh, tell us a little bit about them. Like you had some pretty difficult moments where you're you were running on empty, I guess, in a few few times, right? Yeah. Thank Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's um again I think I went into it thinking if 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 I can put my mind to it then my body will just catch up and just do the work and that's mm. all well and good until you get into a 20 mile an hour offshore wind and they're getting blown out to sea off the coast of an island in Scotland um and there were a few pretty hairy situations where there was an offshore wind and I was getting blown out to sea and I had to really battle to get myself back to land um and there's a lot of kind of 
initially self-doubt the first day that happened and the next day I was like you know that that evening I was like I'm not going out again that's it I'm, I'm done with expeditions this is ridiculous this is life-threatening this is stupid yeah and um you know the next day I woke up to flat calm conditions and you know beautiful blue skies and thought well, I have to keep going um and the more I kind of respected my own limitations but also kind of learned my my physical strength on the on the board the less became absolutely terrifying and the more it became exhilarating and empowering um and yeah there were a few days where it was it was really touch and go there's there's one day I was paddling for about 30 miles and I was absolutely exhausted really running on empty was running out of food um I'd run out of water out on the water um and was basically on the verge of collapse on my board, like literally kneeling on my board with my head lolling to one side and just managed to get in onto shore and collapsed for about four hours when I got on onto land. Um, but it it's kind of instilled this really deep respect for the ocean and its power and my vulnerability there, but also for my own body and what my own body can achieve and what my body can achieve over and above what my mind tells my body it can achieve. Um, yeah. It was just such a massive learning curve, and I—I I, I don't know. It was—it's a really—it was a very transformative expedition, and, and I think to date, paddling around the Isle of Skye was still my favourite expedition of all time. Like the, the scenery was unbelievable. The massive, massive sea cliffs with eagles off the off the top of them, and dolphins and seals. And oh, you're going to make me jealous now, Carl. <laughs> and I was alone for two weeks, so I had a, a real sense of peace and freedom and reconnection and I actually found it really hard after that expedition coming back to in inverted commas what we call normality um because what what we should as humans be living with which is you know living off the land trying to forage for water and food um and you know setting up camp every night and being on the water every day and being completely and utterly transfixed by that and and learning what each and every cloud each breath of wind each wave what that was going to mean to my survival and being completely in tune to absolutely nothing but what was going on around me and that kind of Mm. meant break from all the clutter that we have in our life and all the noise and all the advertising was so just amazing as exhausted as that you felt quite like bombarded when you got back didn't you completely I went to a supermarket and had to walk straight out I couldn't drive for a couple of weeks afterwards because it was so there's just so much noise and busyness and it really helped it it really made me realize how strange our lives are um compared to what was good you know yeah yeah amazing and it received um several awards and quite a bit of media attention then so it sort of um I guess propagated your message um about what you were trying to achieve right you it got a lot of attention and I guess that was probably one of the aims of it was to try and promote that message to a wider audience and get some kind of media attention and, and make a bit of noise around your your campaign right well, well exactly that was the whole point of making the film so the film it, it hopes to be quite educational but rather than in a this is the problem with plastic this is what you need to do kind of way kind of using the story of the expedition and 
knowing some of the situations where I was finding plastic and where it was affecting animals in a bit more of an engaging manner. Um, and I couldn't believe the response, to be honest. You know, the, the film's been all around the world. It's been to pretty much, well, most continents. Um, it's been shown to, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of people, a lot of children as well. I, you know, I've sent it and taken it to lots of schools. Um, it yeah. was John Muir Trust Wild Places Award. And um, I just think um, I was absolutely blown away, but blown away by the reception um, to it. And, and it definitely changed a lot of minds I think in terms of uh, single use plastic bottles that, that was the moment that I changed over to really? having a few uh, a few uh, reusable water bottles <laughs> on my person or in my home <laughs> that's such that's so great to hear because that was exactly the reason for doing it and and I, I think this is kind of where I found that the campaigns can have most effect if you can visually and engagingly talk to somebody about an issue you can really get people on board and that's exactly what I want to do you know I, I don't want to be banging on at people and making them feel rubbish about something or you know talking about something they yeah. already know about. I want to find new ways to deliver those messages and that's why I do the expeditions and why we make the films yeah yeah well I would encourage anyone listening to definitely have a look at um, sky's the limit it's it's epic in terms of just the cinematography and the landscape and the scale of the landscape compared to cal battling your way around the island it's pretty amazing um but then you didn't uh you didn't rest on your laurels after that because i might be skipping ahead a little bit but you took a crazy expedition stand-up paddleboarding from land's end to john O'Groats, the entire length of the country what the hell possessed you to do that well, I had the idea years and years before when I first started paddleboarding. I remember being sat at the kitchen table with my dad. I went home to visit my mum and dad one day. And I was like, I want to paddle from... We were talking about Land's End to John O'Groats or something because it's quite a renowned route for cyclists and walkers and runners and that kind of thing. And I was saying, yeah. oh, I'm going to paddle it. I'm going to paddle And my dad was like, well, don't be ridiculous. And then I was like, oh, I'm not, let's do it. And so I got the map out. I remember getting a UK map out and trying to look at how I could possibly find a route up the canals and rivers from Land's End to John O'Groats. Yeah. At that point in time, I had no idea that ocean exploration on a paddleboard was even possible. And... I definitely needed the previous two expeditions to learn all the lessons that I learned to allow me to appreciate what could and couldn't be done on, on the ocean and, and to just kind of garner that respect really for the, for the ocean. Um, but I don't know, I just, I, um, I, after, after I've got it lesson, in your mind and there, you know, exactly. it stayed, right? Exactly. And until I did it, it was just going to be in, in my, in my little brain, just going round and round. And, Giggling um, away at you. Exactly. And, um, as I was sort of starting to plan it, so you, you briefly touched on suicide in the veteran profession before. One of my very best friends is also a vet um, took her in life a couple of years ago. And that was yeah. kind of in the middle of planning this expedition. And I was completely broken by this. Um, and at the time, I basically had the option of either just sacking off the expedition and just focusing on trying to find a way to get my head around this horrendous grief or paddling mm. it on it. And in some ways, I think it was that was my distraction and that was my way of channeling my grief into something positive. And, um, you know, I was, I raised money for, for vet life during the expedition. She, she was a, um, a trustee for vet life. And, trustee, uh, wasn't she? Yeah. 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 And I think that kind of, that, I don't know, it, it was for her as much as it was for me, that sounds really strange thing to say, but I think kind of, she was so behind all my other expeditions. Like she was my like cheerleader, like 
always there, always like really believed in me and really believed in the Isle of Skye expedition. Um, and mm. I just thought, well, do you know what? She'd probably have called me mental, but believed in this one too. Um, and so I think yeah. that's what kind of gave me the strength to say, I'm just going to do it because I I felt so crap anyway. I was like, well, I might as well feel crap and be out on the ocean and just kind of, um, yeah, um, mope about here. Um, yeah. yeah. I think a bit of both really was what made me do it that year. Um, yeah. Crack on with it, really. Yeah. And uh, then you broke two more world records doing that. And uh, you also raised over 10 grand for VetLife and the Samaritans, didn't you? Yes, so I was the first person to paddle from London to Johnny Groats on a stand-up paddleboard, um, and I have the record for the fastest journey. Um, well, obviously the fastest because it was the it was the first. So um, that's yeah, but yes. not yeah. It was a really great summer, so it was a pretty quick trip <laughs> compared to how long. How I thought long it did it take you? <laughs> took uh, 59 days but I was expecting it to take three or four months so it it was really it was it was rapid compared to how you know if we'd have done it if I'd have done it this year and set off in June or set off in May actually I might have it might have been as rapid this year because I had a really good start the summer but it's not just the you know it's not it's not the sunshine that you need you know you can paddle in the rain it's not a problem it's the wind forecast so yeah over 10 mile an hour you're basically in hell when you're on the water um so unless the wind's directly behind you and pushing you forward and stand up paddle boarding I think a lot of people um understandably do it on lakes and, and canals and rivers where it's much more sheltered as soon as you get out into the ocean and you have any kind of wind it's such a battle um and that summer in yeah. 2018 when I did it we had so many really 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 good days for wind um which were either you know completely flat or they had um gentle winds in the morning that I could make the most of and then just have a battle in the afternoon rather than battling the whole day um, the whole day yeah so you did it via um rivers canals and the coastline right so it was a thousand miles and about 200 miles maybe just more than that were rivers and canals and I wanted to do that to connect the dots between the ocean and inland to kind of demonstrate yeah. the connection between our use of plastic inland and what's in the parts ocean um out in the ocean because 80 percent of um marine litter originates from from the land and a lot of that yeah. is into rivers and canals and then goes out into the sea um and this is another you know way that we're all connected isn't it you know our actions on land are inevitably going to affect the ocean yeah yeah amazing and you also filmed that one so that was the vitamin c film sea rather than see the letter yes exactly so um yeah my the the very very lovely man who filmed so when I finished the Isle of Skye expedition I was on the island the whole time on my own and then a couple yeah. of years later a man I'd never met before um who we've got a mutual friend um who introduced us he out, just out of the generosity of his heart because he's a, a lovely kind man he offered to come up and do some filming um and take some photos yeah. So I just finished the expedition. I was absolutely knackered. I wait, or maybe for- maybe Carl, there was more to it than that. You never know. Mm, who knows? <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, he came up to he came up to the island. This man I'd never met before to take photos and do videos, and then he made this film, Sky's the Limit. And then it turns out I, I, I 
was just I completely loved him and um, then he became my boyfriend and um, the, yeah. the most wonderful lovely boyfriend you could ever imagine and then um, when I paddled Land's End on a Groats um, he obviously then well obviously very kindly then offered to um, to film and make a film about that as well so he basically uh, his name's James Appleton he's an absolute hero um, I think he went through as much during that expedition as I did because anytime I was in trouble like I call him when I was on the water like James I've I've run out of energy I've run out of fuel I'd be like crying my eyes out I've got nothing left in the battery like I've got no flapjack left got no food like I'm nearly out of water and I'm five miles from land and the thick fog and I can't see anything and I think I'm just gonna go to sleep and he'd be like oh shit Kyle don't go to sleep you have to and he'd like talk me through every paddle stroke um there were several days on the water and he had to he had to not only deal with that emotional support but he also was run along the coast path next to me with a drone in the air, c- capturing the the visual. I was going to say he also yeah created a pretty yeah. epic film about it. Yeah, and, and created a film about it. So um, yeah, it was all fate. I think you know that fateful day on the Isle of Skye when uh, he rocked. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's, that's a good that's uh, conversation, wasn't it? I'm going. I know. Well, oh, it's another good thing to come out of your your hard work. <laughs> exactly yeah 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 um what i'm going to dive diverge a little bit but what kind of um wildlife encounters have you had when you've been out on your own at sea and uh that have kind of stunned you or or surprised you oh i really i I don't think I'm ever going to be able to do justice to the wildlife encounters I've had by describing them I wish more than anything that I could transport you back to those moments and you could see them for yourselves because I think as well when you're on a summit waterfall you're quiet you're not making any noise you're moving very very slowly and so the wildlife doesn't feel as threatened by your presence and yeah. uh, like I said before when I paddled around Cornwall there was one day I saw 20 molar molar in the water 20 sunfish and they were just the ones I counted, wow. counting after a while and they're massive right massive some of them were as big as me um i've seen uh, i've seen dolphins i've had dolphins come and play around the board um barrel jellyfish which are enormous great big multicolored jellyfish like huge heads and these great big frilly purple um tails that just kind of they just look like they're not moving and they're going through the water so oh they're just wonderful i love barrel jellyfish there's one night in scotland when we paddled quite um away into the night and um I had bioluminescence illuminating my board and my paddle. Oh, wow. It was as if the northern lights were in the water. My paddle stroke was just greens and blues and splashes of amazing fluorescent colour. It was phenomenal. But I think my favourite wildlife encounter was on the northeast coast of Scotland in between Inverness and John O'Groats, where you've basically got this stretch of coastline that's very remote and there's not much going on there in terms of um, development because they've got huge, massive, you know, 100, 100 metre cliffs. Um, yeah. And, you know, a little bit of boat boat stuff going on with fishermen and that kind of thing. But on these cliffs, as I was paddling past, they have some of the biggest nesting colonies of seabirds in the UK. So we're talking mm. gillibots, puffins, razorbills, um, 
full Mars, um, occasionally I saw gannets just dive bombing at 70 kilometers an hour into the water. Yeah, they're amazing, aren't they? Unbelievable. But when, when you're watching it from the cliff with binoculars, it's fan- fantastic. When you're in the water and there's a pair of puffins half a meter away from you looking up at you like, what are you doing? And you've got guillemots and razor bulls making the most noise circling around you literally just you're in a it's like you're in imagine a swarm of midges in scotland in the middle of summer but that they're burning yeah. that's what it's like it's like it was and it's noisy right so noisy so stinky it's not like fishy rank poo it was disgusting yeah so amazing and um I was completely immersed in that and that was the very last stretch of the expedition. I was exhausted and I'd been paddling through the night for several nights because that was when the wind forecast would allow me to paddle and I'd get these fantastic like sunrises over the water and I was so tired but having those cliffs and those birds to completely immerse me in that environment and keep me mindful and stop me thinking about the intense pain in my shoulders and the fatigue and the fact that this journey was coming to an end and, and, and all those kind of thoughts that could have been infiltrating um my mind at that point in time just being immersed in this amazing wildlife encounter was so special and um recharging that old battery i'd say yeah recharging that but that and my mum who came up my mum and dad came up in their camper van for the last week and basically got up at like one in the morning every day to feed me before i got on the water they recharged oh wow yeah um but between the between my mum and dad my james and the guillemots um, we made a pretty yeah. team that last week up in Scotland. Definitely. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, look, I massively admire your uh, your energy and enthusiasm. It's really inspiring to see. You've uh, received a number of accolades since all of that. You got an honorary master's degree. Um, you were named in uh, Plymouth Live's People of the Decade, which is pretty cool. So congrats on all that. Um, what's next? What's the next big thing then, Cal? Thanks. I really, yeah, I really appreciate you. Um, yeah, you saying that. It's. Um, I think first of all, I'm also very inspired by what you do and by all the people that we've kind of said in our veterinary community who are, are, are doing amazing things in, in very different fields. Um, what's next? Um, well, I'm currently setting up a charity, which is all about reconnecting people to the ocean, like all the stuff we've discussed so far about how people pretend yeah. to love, but you know they can only love what they know. So the idea is, is reconnecting people to our ocean so that they have a personal connection with it, appreciate its benefits for mental health, and are going to want to protect it. Um, so that's kind of the, the big focus at the moment i had a couple of expeditions planned for this year but they've all been put on hold because of covid which is fair enough um yeah. i'm writing a book at the moment as well about um my experience with lands and groats and excuse me that kind of looks a little bit more in depth at my own mental health journey and the grief that i had and um the way that the ocean kind of healed that and the parallels between paddleboarding and and a paddleboarding journey and a, and, a, and a grief journey um and yeah. the kind of lessons the really profound lessons i learned along the way around this idea of rewilding people um and reconnecting people um yeah. and i've got a couple i've got a couple of um a couple of other films in the in the pipeline as well uh james and i are working on a um some films to help help with that reconnection um but just at the moment if i'm honest i'm just trying to get through this covid crisis and try to do it with a bit of grace and um trying to support people who might need it at this point in time um and and a lot of 
that is going to be you know through through the charity and stuff so um it's a strange time and I think it's important at the minute that we just kind of are, are kind to ourselves and not to um not pile that plate too high yeah, yeah. exactly because we're good enough at that when there isn't a global pandemic on our hands so uh yeah definitely definitely and um i don't know should be a little a little sneak peek out now but we're going to do a little collaboration in the near future aren't we <laughs> Yeah. So um, yeah, watch this space. Uh, myself, Cal, and uh, a third party that we both enjoy. Um, their company are going to do a little rewilding the land, sea, and people uh, seminar, I suppose, or webinar. Yeah. yeah. Very soon. Yeah. Yeah. More, yeah. So that's going to be good fun. Bringing all those yeah. world concepts together, I think, isn't it? Really. Definitely, definitely. Now, have you done your homework, Cal? Because I'll be checking next week. Oh, God, yeah, I've got to <laughs> do my homework. I haven't done mine either, don't worry. Have you not? You've been too busy no. camping. I know, I know. Um, I'm going away camping in Dorset this weekend, so I'm like, early next week, I'll do it early next week. Nice, nice. I think camping first. Yeah. Camping first, homework second. That's it, battery needs a recharge. <laughs> so I've got my people ready if I'm, if I'm a bit late. Sorry, Sean, I was camping. That's okay. Yeah, that's all right. I'll forgive you for that. Um, listen, where can people, number one, watch the films and uh, number two, follow you and, and, and more of your adventures? So the films are on Vimeo On Demand at the moment. So they're a few quid to watch and it's raising money to set up the charity. Um, if you go to calmajor.com and click on the films link, um, all the links to the Vimeo sites there. Um, I'm most active yeah. on Instagram. I'm at cal underscore major and Facebook. If you just search cal major paddle against plastic, um, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, yeah, so just yeah, just search cal major on on social media. There are a couple of like random accounts which are definitely not me, but if you just yeah, you'll know which is me. Um, hopefully, um, and you'll see uh, this uh, crazy chick paddleboarding around massive islands and coastlines, and that will be definitely you, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> or getting really excited about the oceans and the animals. That that's me. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. So to to close out, we've we've hit the hour mark. Um, what would you say to people? What's the the one thing that people can do or or, or should do in their in their everyday lives to kind of make a difference? when it comes to ocean health? Yeah, okay. So I think, first of all, it's this is going to be a slightly multi-parted answer, sorry. Um, I think, first of all... No, you're all right. ...not to feel guilty about what we can't do, but to try and really focus on the positives of what we can do. Um, if yeah. you're lost, find your tribe, find your local community of active ocean citizens, people who are actively engaging in these conversations. If you feel like you're at the beginning of a journey and you're feeling a bit lost and you need some, some support, um, Surfers Against Sewage are, are, are brilliant. You know, if you kind of look at their plastic-free coastlines campaigns, there are loads of regional communities working together. And working as a community is so much more effective than working by yourself. That's how I started, was, was volunteering with SAS. Um, and I think just really not... Um, like, don't underestimate the power of your voice as a citizen you know it's not just about the actions we take having that effect just through that action so for example you know you 
using a refillable water bottle it's not just all the plastic that you're not using then it's all the people who see you using that that are influenced by a decision it's the sending to the companies that you're buying from um, and the government and you know using your voice as a citizen write to your mp change your bank you know find a bank that invests in ethical um um it has ethical investments but but tell tell businesses why you are or are not supporting them based on their environmental credentials and like really you know being an active and using your voice engaging in your community i think there's so much to be said for that and look if if even half the people in the uk did that we'd be looking at a very very different world um we've, we've got a long way to go but um i really do think that um that we're moving in the right direction and um you know, we've, we've got to we've got to maintain hope there's an amazing quote from yvonne Chouinard, who's the founder of patagonia who said that the antidote to depression is action and it's so true like we've just got to take action mm positive action believe in in your action find your tribe and um that was definitely more than one thing sorry no all good and lovely wrap up uh, to the conversation look Kyle, thank you so much again for uh, for coming on it's been fascinating i think we could probably talk for another hour but um <laughs> listeners might drop off <laughs> oh, thanks. thanks everyone for, for, for listening no problem and um i'll check in with you again next week to see how your homework's coming <laughs> on yeah sounds good <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Cal. Um, If you've enjoyed, no worries. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sean's Wildlife, please do like and subscribe and leave a rating, which would be great to uh, show it to a wider audience. And if you want to contribute to its running costs, you can do so via Acast and Patreon link in the show description. Um, But thanks once again, and I hope to chat to you all soon.